Hey people, welcome to Accidental Gods, the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible, and that together we can make it happen. I'm Amanda Scott, your host at this place on the web where art meets activism, politics meets philosophy, and science meets spirituality, all in the service of conscious evolution. My guest this week sits squarely in the political sphere. John Wood is the ambassador for Braver Angels, a non-profit organisation in the US that used to be called Better Angels, until, as you will hear, they discovered the depths of courage that were needed to engage in the ways that they are suggesting. Because Braver Angels exists to help bring people together across the political divide. So in the US, that's Democrats and Republicans, groups of people, and they are, we have to say, self-selecting groups of people who know that they want to connect across the divides, endeavouring to heal the chasm of trust that is built up in their communities. They are using technologies that were originally designed for helping couples come together after irretrievable marital breakdown. And it does seem in the UK, in the US, across the world, as if our divides are becoming deeper and more rancorous. So this is particularly inspiring, and John is an astonishingly eloquent, brilliant, utterly inspiring advocate for what he does. So people of the podcast, please welcome John Wood. So John Wood, welcome to Accidental Gods Podcast. Thank you so much for dialing in from early in the morning in Los Angeles. How is it over there just now? Are you all peaceful and spring-like? It's it's my pleasure. Uh, it is uh, fairly peaceful and spring-like. Uh, so, you know, we we are grateful for the weather over here, typically speaking. So it, it, it's what compensates for the traffic. Yes, absolutely. Unless you're in the middle of a drought and having fires, which fortunately it's not that time of year yet. So, you're an ambassador for Braver Angels, which I have to say sounds really, really lovely, and I'm really impressed with that. Can you tell us a little bit about what Braver Angels is and how it arose, and then particularly how you became an ambassador for it? What what led you here? What motivated you? And what was the logistics of getting there? Sure. So Braver Angels is the largest grassroots bipartisan organization in the United States dedicated to the work of political depolarization. And by that, what I really mean is uh, we are dedicated to the work of reforging the bonds of civic trust uh, between the American people as a means of stabilizing our democracy and restoring the integrity uh, of our uh, of our democratic and institutional society. You can say that Braver Angels began in the immediate aftermath of the 2016 election. Um, the original co-founders of the organization, uh, David Blankenhorn, Bill Doherty, and David Lapp, um, brought together about a dozen or so individuals who had recently voted for Donald Trump and who had recently voted for Hillary Clinton, quite literally in a barn in South Lebanon, Ohio, uh, which is a a town that had voted just about 50-50 Trump and Clinton and was very polarized, very divided, and so mirrored the country, really. And 
using methods that had been uh, innovated by Professor Doherty, and uh, Bill Doherty, uh, my colleague, is uh, one of America's foremost family therapists, but also somebody who has a, a history in, in democratic engagement. They put together a, a weekend-long workshop just to see if it was still possible for these folks to uh, discover trust and common ground, even though they are coming from a place of deep-seated distrust. And the workshop wound up being so successful, successful that the people who participated in it um, wanted to see this continue. Uh, they wanted to recommend it to people that they knew. And so what wound up happening was that the original, uh, the original Better Angels team wound up um, getting on a bus and going up and down uh, the, the the East Coast and into some southern states, I believe, basically holding workshops from town to town. NPR had uh, gotten a hold of the story and did a special that wound up helping to spread the word fairly quickly in that early stage. Mm. And um, with a very sort of small crew, the original team wound up sort of seeding workshops um, that themselves became the starting point for local Better Angels communities. We were called Better Angels at the time. And um, I got involved in the work as a volunteer in the, uh, I think, late summer, early fall of 2017. So this was after the, after the bus tour. And I was hired as a member of staff in, in uh, spring of 2018. In my story, how I got to be involved, it has some twists and turns. So in 2014, I was a nominee for Congress. Uh, I was one of the youngest nominees in the state of California uh, at that time. I was a Republican nominee for Congress uh, running in uh, South Central Los Angeles. I just I just so happened to have run against uh, Congresswoman Maxine Waters in that election cycle. Subsequently, I was uh, elected vice chairman of the Republican Party in L.A. County, hmm. Um, but before all of that, I had uh, grown up very much thinking of myself as a as a liberal Democrat, and I, I worked for Barack Obama's campaign uh, on, on a local level in 2008. I uh, had my own sort of you know story of uh, political conversion and so forth, and, and and the the bullet points of that are that I I grew up very much thinking of myself as a as a liberal-leaning uh, Democrat uh, who was very much jaded by the George W. Bush years. Hmm. At the age of 17, just a few days short of being old enough to vote, uh, I found myself washing my hands of politics after George W. Bush was reelected because I thought all of my activism didn't work. And, you know, my, you know, going to rallies and speaking out against the Iraq war and so on and so forth didn't didn't change the course of things. And so I, uh, I become cynical <laughs> at a very early age, but then when Barack Obama uh, showed up on the scene, I was, I was deeply inspired one uh, because just on a biographical level, I, I related to uh, then Senator Obama quite a bit. Um, I'm, I too am a person from a, from a biracial uh, household and a multicultural family um, I grew up in a family that was half white, half black, half upper class, half, you know, sort of middle to, to lower class, half rural, half urban, you know. Mm. Um, my father's a baby boomer. My mother uh, was born uh, closer to the mid-60s. And um, I grew up in, in a 
a number of cultural intersections and sort of found myself always translating and interpreting between different cultural and philosophical camps to one degree or another. And I recognized those elements in uh, Senator Obama's story. And that seemed to translate to a very inclusive and humanistic philosophy of politics that he seemed to have. And so for me, the idea of hope and change had to do with creating the space for sort of, in some respects, a post-racial and a post-partisan kind of politics in, in America. And that certainly was an idea with deep appeal to me, uh, certainly, certainly at the time. And so I threw myself into working for uh, Senator Obama's campaign. And after he was elected, I thought that the most useful thing I could do would be to find ways of getting Republicans and conservatives involved in this sort of movement of, of political reconciliation, if you will, or the social reconciliation. And so I took it upon myself to... Uh, to start studying conservatism in ways that more deeply than I, than I had previously. And a few things happened that sort of conspired to make me a bit more conservative. I, I got married to a woman from a traditional uh, Black Baptist uh, religious background, which is quite a bit more conservative than my own um, upbringing, religiously and culturally speaking. And uh, she joined the army. We moved from Los Angeles to a military town. Suddenly all of my friends were soldiers and people of faith. But I was also reading books that I hadn't read before, Wealth of Nations and Atlas Shrugged and, and, and other things. And I just sort of looked up one day, also after having studied African-American history from a more conservative vantage point. And I went down a list of 100 issues and I thought, you know, if I, if I plot myself on the spectrum on all of these points, looks like I'm actually about right of center on maybe 62 or 65 of them, which was a very uh, uncomfortable uh, revelation uh, for me, you know, because it sort of challenged my sense of my own um, identity, politically speaking. Mm. But the thing that remained constant for me was that I still wanted to advocate for what I believe to be the spirit of hope and change. I, I, I still felt that ultimately what we needed to progress towards was a society more deeply rooted in empathy, um, and a society in which empathy and the themes of nonviolence, um, as per the teachings of Dr. King, would animate our social discourse. Mm. And so I tried to think of ways to jump into the conversation, to have a voice in the conversation. And uh, we were moving back to Los Angeles. I thought, well, maybe I'll try my hand at running for office. I knew I wasn't likely to win coming out of nowhere. But on the other hand, I, I was very confident that I had something to say. And so I ran basically as a hope and change Republican, if you will, in L.A., sort of building bridges between black and white, left and right, mm. and um, tried to, after the campaign, bring that philosophy to the, to the Republican Party on an institutional level. I found that to be exceedingly difficult. <laughs> and then with the Trump, uh, yes. And well, you know, um, I wanted to create better relationships between Democrats and Republicans. I wound up getting... Uh, all sorts of grief within the Republican Party really? for hanging out with the wrong, for fraternizing with the wrong Republicans. Uh, Republicans hated each other so much in Los Angeles and California that one couldn't even get to the point of trying to <laughs> establish some congeniality uh, with anybody else. And so, and that was, and that was all before the the, the Trump. Uh, phenomenon emerged in the GOP, and when that happened, it was a, another sign to me that you know maybe I, maybe I was not in the right. Uh, place in terms of, you know, uh, having a, being in an environment that, being in an environment that I could influence in a more empathetic uh, and inclusive kind of direction. And so I, um, 
ultimately uh, sought to launch a digital media network that was sort of akin to popular networks like the Young Turks or the Daily Wire, with the difference being that it was not meant to be either left or right, but left and right, bringing together people who disagreed about politics, but who agreed about how we ought to treat one another in politics. And sort of spent about a year of my life getting that off the ground, only to be only to have been sort of hit with a, with a legal challenge from a multi-billion dollar company that thought our the name of our organization was a bit too close to theirs, even though they were in a totally different business. And so that's that's its own story. But around that time, a friend of mine turned me on to the existence of a group called Better Angels. And I looked at Better Angels' website. One of the things I had wanted to accomplish with the digital media structure was to build up an audience was to model a, a conversational culture that could jump off the screen into local communities, to build up an audience nationally that then could participate in dialogue and organizing events locally. And with Better Angels, they were already doing the sorts of things locally that I thought that a, a digital community could sort of could sort of lead towards. But at the time, uh, they had a, an old website that was very pixelated and text-heavy and uh, Facebook page that had been sort of abandoned, it looked like, and a YouTube channel with a couple of nice clips, but nothing much going on. And so I thought, well, I've been working on a digital strategy that conforms to this same sort of uh, culture and philosophy uh, for a year now. Maybe they would be interested in the sort of media network idea I have as a complement to their on-the-ground work. And and it wound up, uh, that wound up actually being the case. Uh, but very soon after I was brought on board to sort of help build that out, it very quickly sort of became evident that my uh, abilities and, and experience in other areas, in the area of political messaging and organizing and sort of my ability to perhaps articulate the mission, made me equally useful, if not more useful, as just sort of a general spokesperson and strategist for the organization. And so, like most of us on the team, you know, I've got one title, but seven different jobs, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, and, but chief among those is, you know, the very fun um, duty of getting to sort of relate the mission to the outside world yeah. in conversations like this. And so that is roughly the, uh, the story, uh, my journey to, to better angels, now braver angels. Brilliant. And here we are. We'll talk in a minute about the, the name change. But reading your website, which I have to say is not pixelated and text-heavy anymore, so somebody had an input in that. It's really good. <laughs> Obviously, in the U- U.S., red is to the right and blue is to the left. In Britain, it's the opposite, which occasionally does my head in. But as I understand it, in your organization itself, which is relatively small, but it's not tiny, you're endeavoring to balance red and blue mm. across the board. How do you personally identify now? Well, you know, I still think of myself as um, conservative, uh, essentially. It's probably fair to say that my conservatism is a little bit difficult to pin down. One, perhaps because it's influenced by so so many different strains of the black freedom tradition. I mean, from Booker T. Washington to Malcolm X and certainly Martin Luther King Jr. And on the other hand, it's probably conservatism that in, in some respects, <laughs> this, may be, uh, this may be positive or negative uh, for you, but my conservatism probably sort of is a little bit more reminiscent of Edmund Burke than Ted Cruz. I would, I would imagine. Um, you know, I, I have a sort of a, hmm. a conservatism that is 
more focused on, I think, preserving preserving what is working in the social and institutional structures that undergird society as opposed to necessarily aggressively advancing sort of a, a sweeping sort of, you know, cultural or economic program that may serve certain constituencies better or, or worse, um, you know, in, in real life application. But, you know, uh, I do uh, ultimately uh, think of myself as somebody who is concerned with preserving what must be preserved uh, in American society. And, and part of what I think has to be preserved, even to facilitate a society that strives more effectively towards justice for all people, is a norm in which uh, we are willing to enter into civic dialogue and civic debate from a posture of good faith, recognizing the fact that there's something extraordinary about living in a country mm. that, for all of its founding contradictions, was instantiated in the belief that you have these rights to liberty and justice and equality for all people, that the purpose of society is to be able to safeguard these rights so as to create the context for mutual human flourishing, the pursuit of happiness, in Thomas Jefferson's words. And that while there is always a, a tension between equality and liberty and some of the different social goods we want to hold up, a certain sort of axiomatic commitment to, uh, to, to liberty, I think, is necessary to creating the space for that human flourishing, even as it is also the case that sound statecraft requires us to be attentive to the ways in which the liberties of, of one group or one person could potentially infringe upon the, the liberties or the, the opportunity or the rights of another. And so there's a consistent balance that has to take place. But what I resist is, I think, the impulse to more or less sort of, you know, overturn the, 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 the system, if you will, or to sort of overturn longstanding norms of free speech and intellectual inquiry and, and other things in society for, for the sake of, of sprinting towards the finish line of perfect justice when that is rarely really an option. But these are, you know, these are age-old sorts of tensions in, in societies uh, like ours. Mm. And I think that you do, you know, another aspect of my conservatism is that part of what I believe is that human society unfolds in dialectic in some sense. You need a healthy sort of, sort of conversation and dialogue between conservative and liberal impulses in a society because one side is always going to be more sensitive to certain aspects of the truth than the other side. And ideally, we would compensate for each other's inability to see certain things because different individuals and different groups have different sets of immediate interests. But the larger interest is always the interest of the whole, I think. And it takes the whole to be able to see and comprehend that. But we can only do that if we're in constructive sort of communication and, 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 and earnest community, I think, um, with one another. So that's a little bit of an overview of my broad kind of political philosophy. Yeah, this is so interesting, John. I can feel myself wanting to drag us down rabbit holes that were not <laughs> part of my original sketch at all. Just so let's go down one rabbit hole, because we have we have got the time to come back to Braver Angels in a moment. But the the larger interest is the interest of the whole. And it seems to me that 
at this moment where we're facing the existential crisis of climate change and the sixth mass, ex- mass extinction and mm-hmm. ecological breakdown, that that's a that should apply globally. And I'm wondering if you personally or within Braver Angels are seeing any move at all within the international community to see the larger interest as the interest of the whole rather than this retreat into narrow nationalistic boundaries. Mm. Is that something that comes up in your conversations with people at all? Well, our work at Braver Angels is fairly uh, fairly focused um, on the internal sort of dynamics of polarization uh, in the United States. I will say that within the United States, the issue of climate change specifically uh, has been a largely uh, uh, left-leaning issue. But our organization and uh, some of our local chapters, most specifically, I think, our community in Austin, which is very conservative, um, which is a you know a more conservative area. Certainly, Texas is a very conservative state. But we have uh, had interactions with an organization called the Citizens Climate Lobby, which is a bipartisan organization pushing towards um, well, uh, uh, pushing towards uh, more market oriented, but still a consensus built based uh, solutions to climate change. And in that context, we have, and we would do this for other advocacy organizations to be certain and uh, and are going to, but uh, we've provided workshop models to sort of show how it is that folks who are interested in more broadly communicating the need to engage climate change can do so in a way that is empathetic, that brings in the lived experiences of folks who have skepticism about that issue, and that is aimed towards building uh, an environment of genuine listening from which genuine consensus and collaboration can emerge. And so, you know, within the United States, I think you can look in different places and in Braver Angels, you know, organizational experience, we can testify to the fact that on this particular issue, there does seem to be um, a perhaps a slow, but a real diversification of interest in engaging uh, the subject of climate change. Uh, And so, that is perhaps a positive development from within the United States. One thing I can say about the sort of international um, climate as we're able to observe it, you know, from the context of our work here, and again, you know, it's not our primary focus as an organization, uh, but, you know, but we do find ourselves, and I find myself in some dialogue with the international community, also in podcasts like these, is that Certainly the issue of polarization, generally speaking, is a problem, you know, around the globe. And we do have, I mean, from Spain to Latin America to the UK, and I think probably to in, in France as well, we've had folks reach out to us for input, uh, people asking about whether or not Braver Angels could potentially have a presence in their own countries of origin. And I think that that's simply because people around the globe recognize the fact that for all the structural issues you can identify as being problematic for human societies and for the species as a whole, there's no deeper structural impasse than the social impasse that keeps us from being able to communicate uh, in a communal way with one another across the various divides that, you know, are maybe unique from country to country, but also similar from country to country. Mm. So I do think that there's a little bit of a, an international kind of awakening that you can see sprouting 
in the direction of realizing that there's something deeply broken about our sort of factional impulse in, in democratic societies such that, you know, we need to sort of dig a level deeper to be able to restore our ability to connect in a humanistic sort of sort of frame, something that transcends the partisanship and the tribalism. And uh, without that, it's hard to imagine how we can effectively confront an issue like climate change, uh, which would seem to require sort of the mass of humanity to be invested in collaborating together in order to confront. So, yeah, you know, the, these issues are certainly related um, on that on that level. And without that kind of, you know, a strategy for establishing that kind of unity, it's hard to see how we make sufficient progress. Okay, so let's have a talk about the strategies, because in some of your podcasts, you discuss some of the workshop models that you have used. Can you tell us what they are? And particularly, if you have any examples of how how they have managed to bring people together, specific, if you're allowed to share, examples of people who started out polarized and have, have managed to begin to see each other's perspectives differently. Sure. Well, you know, in that very first workshop I mentioned, and I'll, I'll tell you the, the, the basic structure of that. So we have a workshop that it's not typically a weekend long affair, but it sort of descends from that original weekend workshop that kind of began our efforts. It's called a red blue workshop. And yes, for, for your listeners in the UK, red the other way around. indicates conservative in, in the United States and blue indicates, you know, liberal leaning. Although it wasn't always that way. As a matter of fact, that's really only a phenomenon of the last 20 years. Um, the media networks switched the colors, you know, in the 2000 election, if I'm not mistaken. And those designations just reversed from, from that time on. There are many Republicans and conservatives who very much resent that actually in America because they're used to thinking of red as being the color of communism and so forth, which is for some conservatives, that's the main reason you are a conservative is because you don't like socialistic, uh, you know, politics, uh, red politics. But anyway, that's a tangent. The original workshop uh, and the workshop model that's derived from it works in this way. You have, uh, it's called a red-blue workshop. You have a small group of folks who lean conservative on one hand and a small group of folks who lean uh, liberal on the other hand, probably between a half a dozen and you know nine or ten or so, typically speaking. Each side gets the opportunity not to argue and debate their politics primarily, but to speak from the vantage point of their own personal or lived experience in terms of why they see politics the way that they do. This workshop begins with the individuals from each color uh, gathered in the same place with two moderators. And after an initial round of introductions, each moderator takes one group into a different location. And they commence with the first exercise, which is called a stereotypes exercise. And so what that involves is each side uh, itemizing a list of stereotypes that they see the other side as having about them. So for conservatives, for reds, it almost always, this list almost always begins with uh, the word racism. The other side thinks that we're racist. Might also include things like, you know, they think that we hate poor people. They think that we're anti-science. And on the blue side, on the liberal side, the list you know may begin with something like, oh, they think we're unpatriotic. They think that we hate America. They think that we want to take away everybody's rights. They think that we want to mooch off of the leech off of the government, etc. Each side has the opportunity to put together a list of stereotypes to present to the other side, along with uh, a bit of an articulation uh, as to why they think these stereotypes do not reflect who they really are. 
Each side is also given the opportunity to comment on the kernel of truth, however, that they may see as present in the different stereotypes. And so with conservatives, you'll very oftentimes hear a presentation that says, you know, we are not racist. Conservatism is about believing that everybody is born with equal intrinsic value and that everybody has a right to liberty. But on the other hand, conservatives will also often sort of uh, acknowledge that there are racists who vote with the Republicans, uh, that there's some racists who fly under their uh, travel under their banner, and that they should do more to make sure these people are not comfortable in the Republican Party or in the conservative movement. And uh, likewise, you'll oftentimes have liberals or progressives say, we love America, we love our country, we criticize our country because we love it, but there are some of us who are so jaded or cynical about politics in the United States that, you know, maybe some of us don't see anything good in our country at all. And that's not, that's not a balanced way to look at things and we should engage that. So you'll have this sort of discourse that, that takes place. Now, in the first workshop, you asked for examples. Uh, one of the most symbolic examples I can give came out of that very first interaction. We had two gentlemen who are, uh, uh, who've become friends of mine in the time, sin time since, uh, one named Greg Smith and the other named Kuyar Mustashvi. Uh, Greg's an evangelical uh, Christian who's a small town sheriff and somebody who I think had worked in uh, construction um, who had voted for Donald Trump and was a very strong supporter of Donald Trump. And Kuyar uh, is an immigrant from Iran uh, who is one of the leaders of the local uh, Democratic Party and a Muslim, uh, a liberal-leaning uh, Muslim. And when Greg met Kuyar uh, in the workshop, at a certain point when they were allowed to interact, Greg uh, turned his attention to Kuyar and he said, Kuyar, he, he said, I've got a problem with Islam. He said, and I can explain it to you in four letters, I, S, I, and before he finished spelling out the word ISIS, uh, Kuyar interrupted him and he said, stop. He said, I know what you're going to say. He said, but let me tell you something. He said, my religion has been hijacked. And he may have asked Greg if Greg could relate to the idea of his religion being hijacked uh, by people who don't represent his values. And and Greg, according to Greg, he, he, he heard Kuyar say that and he thought to himself, well, God dang, my religion has been hijacked too. And he thought about people who uh, wore the garb of Christianity, but who represented hatred and intolerance and values that he did not hold. And so that became the starting point for a friendship between Greg and Kuyar, uh, which actually wound up garnering a fair amount of attention and, uh, across the country, uh, particularly in the early period of Braver, of, of then Better Angels. Um, they made a commitment to each other uh, that, that Kuyar would visit, would come to church with Greg and, and, and visit with this community, and that Greg would visit Kuyar's mosque and get to know uh, the Islamic community that, that Kuyar was a, a part of there in, there in Ohio. And um, they became fast friends and have remained sort of allies in the work of building up and spreading the word of Braver Angel's work. But there are many such examples. Um, I can think of another uh, couple of folks um, who, uh, from Graceland College in Iowa, uh, who wound up becoming uh, college roommates and working together with Braver Angels. Mm. Um, one uh, was the head of the College Republicans uh, group on campus. Uh, the other uh, was a gay man, uh, is a gay man, and uh, the head of the College Democrats, or was the head of the College Democrats on Graceland campus. And they brought their clubs together after having sort of interacted through the context of Braver Angels programs 
to develop a dialogue that sort of modeled what a braver angels or better angels discourse of politics, culture of politics could look like on the campus level. And so, you know, we're active across sectors and institutions, I should say. Um, most of our work is concentrated on the grassroots level, but we have programs and workshops that we conduct with state legislators, with congressional staffers, with mayors and city council people. Um, we have presence a presence on college campuses across the country, uh, work that we do with uh, journalists and some work that we do in corporations. And of course, we have a, our fledgling media network, Braver Angels uh, Media, uh, and again, you know, presence in, in local communities across the country. Um, and so there, there are many stories, uh, there are many stories to tell, to be sure. We will come back to those possibly in another podcast, I think, because we're, we're going to run out of time shortly. So I have a bunch of questions. We've been in lockdown around the world. Has the format changed significantly once you must have moved from in-person connections to Zoom connections? Mm. How has that shifted things or has it at all? Well, it, it was a significant um, turning point uh, in our organizational history and uh, something that initially brought with it a great deal of concern because before the lockdown, we had begun to sort of tinker a little bit with web-based uh, workshops, but we really hadn't made too much progress in that direction. And then when the lockdown took place, suddenly it became a necessity, uh, you know, just to be able to, for our work to survive. And, you know, that was a bit of an open question because uh, part of what we wondered is, do the experiences that we cultivate at, uh, at, at that point, we were braver angels, do they translate? online uh, sufficiently to be able to make our work viable because we had exclusive, almost exclusively been doing things, you know, face-to-face in person. And indeed, there are plenty of ways in which it, it's, it can be easier to create a, a deeply felt connection in person. But it ultimately wound up being the case that the transition to uh, web-based interactions was uh, was a boon to our efforts and, and not a drag on them. Um, one thing I should mention is that Braver Angels has a debates program, and debate is actually a part of what we do. Mm. Our debate program was designed by my uh, my brilliant colleague, uh, April Lawson, uh, who you may be familiar with, the director of uh, debates and public discourse at Braver Angels. It's it's a parliamentary debate model, so you'll be well familiar with it uh, in the in the UK. Uh, it came to she adapted. Uh, April had experience at the Yale Student Union and that sort of model. Of course, that derives from the British parliamentary model itself. And um, our debate model is about bringing people together from every rung of society to debate important issues, but to do so in a spirit of intellectual humility. And so you have a chairperson uh, in the middle of the uh, in the middle of the floor or in the middle of the Zoom room uh, in this case. Uh, you have a resolution that people will debate on either side of, resolved we should defund the police or something like that. Uh, people are encouraged to marshal facts and, and 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 reason, of course, in their arguments, but they're also encouraged to share personal stories and to admit their doubts, those things that they themselves may not be sure they are 100% correct about, even if they think or feel them on a given issue. And people even have the opportunity and the option of switching sides in the middle of a debate if they feel their minds change. And that is something that is actu- actually encouraged in our context. So we look at it less as a as a win-lose, zero-sum competition, and more as a communal pursuit of truth. That is the sort of spirit that guides 
uh, Braver Angels debates. And that program in particular wound up becoming wildly popular and very effective once we worked out a few kinks over Zoom. And with the breakout room function, we were able to bring together up to 800 or so people uh, in a given night to participate in these sorts of in these sorts of events, which is really remarkable. And not only were we able to bring together more people, but we were able to do so from across greater geographical distances. Uh, and so on all those levels, uh, the lockdown actually sort of expanded the reach of our programming and made it easier for us to bring new people into the community. Um, and so, um, you know, it certainly was difficult to affect some of our programs to, to make that transition workable in certain cases. But the debate program sped off very uh, quickly. And at this point, I think all of our workshops have been replicated online in a way that would make anybody listening to this podcast uh, uh, potentially available for uh, a digital version of the experience. So Brilliant. on the whole, it was beneficial. And other than shifting formats and shifting on to online, have you significantly changed the nature of the social technologies that you use? Because as I understand it, Bill Doherty began this because he has experience in marriage counselling. And this he brought the technologies, the kind of humane technologies that we use for bringing very disrupted couples back into the room together and began to use that in the same kind of disrupted political sense. Mm-hmm. Have you stuck with pretty much the same format or has that evolved into something as we've moved on to Zoom as well? Well, I think that our conceptual origins uh, remain uh, sort of the foundation of our of our approach, but we've developed more uh, workshops and, and we've added tools to the kit, certainly as we've gone along. So in addition to the uh, Red Blue Workshop, which is Bill Doherty's design, and now in addition to the Brave Angels debate uh format, which is uh, April Lawson's uh, design, we have something called a depolarizing within workshop. Uh, And that workshop is aimed at uncovering really your own sort of inner polarizer, if you will. It's, it's Mm. It's a workshop that gives us the opportunity to reflect on the attitudes that we hold about the other side, to examine them and see just how much they may be representative of a caricature of the other side, as opposed to a real sort of nuanced and and humane understanding of the lived experiences of people on the other side and the broader contours of their beliefs. Uh, And it provides ways of challenging ourselves internally to elevate the quality of our internal dialogue so that when we do find ourselves in conversation or uh, in a shared space with people who are coming from these other points of view, that psychologically speaking, uh, we will stand on healthier ground and therefore be more effective communicators and, and, and better able to emotionally and psychologically persist in such an environment. There's also something called a uh, skills for bridging the divide workshop, which really focuses in on just sort of sharpening our ability to communicate constructively and empathetically across the divide through the through the applications of, of, of various techniques. And so one of those techniques is, uh, is paraphrasing, uh, learning how to hear somebody else's uh, description of their own political point of view. You know, you might have somebody say, oh, I'm very much a pro-life uh, conservative. And if, if you're a pro-choice uh, individual, if you're on the other side of that question, you might have had the sort of instinct previously to say, okay, so that means you don't you don't want women to have the right to choose what they do with their bodies. 
But even if that's how you consider that opinion, that's not likely to be the way in which a conservative, you know, socially conservative individual is thinking about that position in their own mind. They're going to have very different language and a very different emotional and moral rationale for their perspective. And so, you know, if you can if you can communicate their perspective back to them in terms that say, okay, you are pro-life because you believe that unborn life is sacred and needs to be protected, and this is where you're coming from and your point of view, that can show that other individual that you are listening to them and that you hear the authenticity of their point of view. It doesn't mean that you are persuaded by them or that they're persuaded by you, but you will have put them in a frame of listening because you will have established the basis for their having some trust in your own intentions, because you will have presented yourself as somebody who is not seeking to misrepresent uh, who they are and misrepresent their their position and, and their character in the context of an exchange. And so that suggests humility, that suggests goodwill, and those things become the foundation for trust, which in terms becomes the foundation for communication. Uh, and so we dive into those sorts of techniques, uh, specifically in our Skills for Bridging the Divide workshop. We have workshops specifically tailored for families uh, that are uh, engaged and perhaps suffering uh, through uh, uh, divisive political conversations. We have workshops designed specifically for uh, reds in a, uh, in a blue environment or blues in a, in a red environment. We even have uh, a one-to-one conversational model uh, that is focused on facilitating uh, conversations across the racial divide between white and black Americans uh, and one-to-one conversational uh, models or one-to-one conversational model meant to facilitate race, race-oriented conversations between white people who may fall on different ends of the political spectrum uh, in the country. Uh, and so, uh, yes, our, our toolkit has expanded fairly dramatically since the, since the earliest days. And it's because we're doing our best to be responsive to the various different sorts of uh, circumstantial um, and uh, fault lines and sort of the, the, the nuanced kind of fault lines that present themselves uh, on some of the different, uh, some of the different issues of, of, let's say, you know, race, for instance, uh, that require uh, sort of specific uh, specific attention in the context of design as we think about how to facilitate conversations across some of these divides. And so I, I think that we will likely continue to expand our, um, our repertoire, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, because you know the, the divides that we face uh, have some general features to them that they share in common, but there's a great deal of complexity. And um, it's important for us to be able to address that. Yeah. And I would really be interested in coming back to discuss one of those, some of those one-to-one technologies and how you use them. But in the time we have left, mm-hmm. I'm really interested in where you see this going. Suppose Braver Angels were to achieve its grandest, biggest dream. How would America look at the next election? Mm. Indeed. Well, I think that with everything that I just described to you that we are doing, we are on top of that simultaneously seeking to tell a story to the American people. And this is a great deal of what I focus on in my own work and in the media as a messenger for the organization. But we're seeking to tell a story for the American people that illustrates the United States of America as a country that in order for it to achieve its greater promise, 
has to be able to uplift the diversity of the lived experiences and moral foundations that make up the body politic in this country such that we are able to deeply sort of understand and empathize with one another's struggles while also striving together towards the common good and towards a greater goal. And in order to do this, we have to grow beyond our desire to excommunicate one another from the American family. And so I think that my great hope is that between now and the next election, not only will we have built up and scaled upward uh, our community of practice, which already extends across the country. I mean, we have close to about 20,000 dues-paid members or so, close to about 100 local Brave Angels uh, bipartisan alliances. But could we increase that uh, by an order of magnitude? I think it's possible. And if we did, could we tell a story that captures the attention, captures the imagination of the American people such that we may begin to disenthrall folks from the polarizing narratives, which really do exist, I think, to sort of serve the the power and the material and the profit sort of interests of, you know, of media companies, of political parties, of individual politicians, and so forth. And, you know, that this is... This is how things go uh, with major interests in society, but that do not necessarily reflect who we really are as Americans to each other. I mean, I'm a person who has a, a mother who's a, who's a black Democrat who voted for Joe Biden and a father who's a white Republican who voted for Donald Trump, uh, each of whom are wonderful people uh, who love their family, uh, who have been, uh, uh, who've contributed to society uh, and who have deeper values in common, even if the cultural and the social and political conflicts that exist between them and people like them are very much real. And so is it not just for us to try and strive towards what Dr. King described as the beloved community, for us to try and unearth the humanity in one another so that we can begin to communicate with each other um, along that wavelength for the purposes of discovering the ways in which we might move forward together and for the purposes of being able to persuade one another through love and goodwill of where we stand on the issues uh, and to allow the currents of goodwill to carry us forward. I think that an America that begins to fall in love um, with love as a vehicle for social progress is really the dream of Braver Angels and the goal. And um, it is to that end that we that we apply ourselves. That is so lovely. I am tempted to end there, but I would, one final question, because I'm trying to imagine this happening, and I'm wondering, given the realities of the world, given that at the moment social media is acting as a disinformation machine and the attention economy is what it is, can you imagine Braver Angels' greater community, not necessarily you yourselves, but people who are, let's say, alumni of your training, setting up a party mm. that is different, that offers a different fare than the constant division of the tribalism of the opposing parties just now? Would that work at all in the political system or would it require a totally changed political system to work? Well, you know, there are all sorts of structural reasons why third-party politics are very difficult to build momentum around in the United States. Our, our system has evolved to be a two-party system, which isn't to say that couldn't change. I think that what I hope for, and, and what you mentioned is, you know, it's certainly hypothetically, it's it's possible. Um, I, yeah, I, I think it's possible we could see a third party that became competitive eventually. Um, but what, what I hope for more in the short term is that significant factions within each of the major parties mm. wind up adopting 
these values and these perspectives so that we can influence the parties that currently predominate in our society towards shifting their approach. I'll also answer a, a question very quickly that I know that you would uh, intended to ask about the name change, just to tie it in here at the very end. And Thank you. It's a, it's, a, it's a longer, more complicated story, but I'll say that on a substantive level, we began as better angels, quoting, hearkening back to Abraham Lincoln, the quote, the better angels of our nature, uh, which was a line from his, uh, I think, was it his first inaugural address when the United States was on the brink of civil war and he was beckoning us towards a mutual respect that could allow us to avoid violence. Of course, that didn't quite work out. But in our own time, the work of bridge building has leaned heavily upon empathy as a value. Mm. And um, we actually have a phrase that we use at Braver Angels called patriotic empathy, where we say that our love of our country is signaled by our concern for our fellow Americans, right? Um, but one thing we realize is that empathy alone is unguarded in a sense, because when you take the time to relate to the humanity of your opponent, you not only risk being vilified by the person who distrusts you on the basis of your political differences, but you also risk being targeted in some cases by otherwise friends and comrades who may share your politics, but who may look at your willingness to humanize the opposition as a sign of either weakness or having one having sold out. And so courage in that context becomes a vital virtue. One has to be able to stand in one's convictions and willingness to be able to acknowledge and to emphasize the dignity of those with whom one disagrees. That brings with it a certain amount of risk and therefore requires a certain amount of bravery uh, to be able to effectively commit to, hence the name Braver Angels. Brilliant. Thank you. That's a very wonderful place to stop. So, John Wood, thank you so much for coming on to the Accidental Gods podcast. Thank you, Amanda. It's been a pleasure. So that's it for another week. Huge thanks to John for his capacity to take complex, deep, detailed ideas and render them so obvious that I can't think why we haven't been doing this all along. If he succeeds, if he is able to get 200,000 people who have really engaged with the other side and then go back to their tribes and begin to express that capacity for creating a politics based on empathy and compassion and trust, then the world will definitely be different. And we can do that wherever we are in the world. We can do it in the UK. You can do it in your country, wherever that is. All we need is to find people who want to engage. And Braver Angels has the social technologies. They are working out how to do this. In any country, in any language, this can be done. So if this makes your heart sing, then get in touch with the Braver Angels and ask what you can do in your communities. Ask not what your world can do for you. Ask what you can do for your world. And on that cliche, we will leave it for this week. We will be back next week with another conversation. In the meantime, huge thanks to Carol for her astounding work on the sound engineering. Thanks to Faith for the tech and keeping things going behind the scenes. And thanks to you for listening. If you want to find the show notes, if you want to join the membership programme, if you want to subscribe on Patreon, everything is on accidentalgods.life. And if you know of anybody else who would like to be part of the greater, generative, empathic dance of the world, 
then please do send them this link. And that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you and goodbye.